that I don't care if you listen to this podcast and you totally hate me. Welcome to Clocker Counter. I'm James Wiseman and with me is Ryan Young. So the first thing we're going to do today is we have a Bob Coleman update. So recently we did a podcast where we drafted number one players in the world. And Ryan and I didn't know a lot about Bob Coleman. And so we drafted him very low. But we vowed that we would go onto YouTube, look up Bob Coleman and see what it was all about. And I'll say I totally forgot to do that for the couple weeks afterwards. But I had a conversation with Arthur Coddington, who I believe you drafted number one on the draft of mm -hmm. number one ranked players. And I told him about the Bob Coleman fiasco. And he said, no, 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 no. You need to go look up this very specific video of Bob Coleman on Jack's Beach from the 1990s, where he goes through just about every move to teach people how to do it. And I found this video. It's pretty cool. It's edited, so I can't tell you for sure how many takes it took to hit all these cool moves. But the guy, in my opinion, definitely has games game. And I was surprised to find that this video only had like a couple hundred views. Um, one of which, because there was a comment, was Marco Pavanelli. So shout out to him for already digging deep enough in the archive to find this video. But Ryan, I can report Bob Coleman, pretty great player. I'm not sure I would have drafted him much higher than we did, but great respect for his game. Cool. Yeah, I also looked him up after we had that episode. And unfortunately, all freestyle videos look the same to me. So it was just another another guy in the <laughs> in the group. Yeah, I mean, every time I send you a freestyle video I make, you you all you text me back is how many seconds you got through. You're, you're usually like, oh, I watched the first 12 seconds and then I got bored and then I turned it off. So I can't even... I can usually make it, yeah, 30 seconds is my limit. <laughs> I, I can't even convince my best friend to watch my YouTube videos. So I, I'm well aware that there's a pretty much an audience of one for those videos, but that's okay. Cool. So one thing we also want to talk about is podcast feedback we've gotten. So Ryan, you want to start us off and let people know how we're doing, what are the analytics show and what people are saying? Yeah, the feedback has been really positive and it's really great that we're even getting feedback. We're getting written messages and we're getting comments on the Facebook thread, which I like. We even and get emails from yeah. our Gmail account, which is clockercounter at gmail.com. So that's really cool. We do monitor that inbox. So feel free to send those along. And what kind of listener counts have we had, Ryan? I think we're up around 600 downloads at this point, which is a lot to me. So last I checked, we had 770 from our first two episodes, which I thought was pretty great because we haven't really been pushing it very much. But I hope that number grows. But honestly, it's way more than I thought given how niche our subject matter is, but hopefully that means people are liking it. And also hopefully it means when the podcasts aren't two and a half hours, the listenership will even grow because if you can get through the two and a half hour slogs we've done, I think it'll be a little bit more palatable going forward. <laughs> Any specific feedback on the content that you want to share, like things you think we can still improve on? Nothing's coming to mind right now. I was, this is going to come up later in the episode, but a lot of the feedback goes directly to James. I don't hardly see any of the feedback. James has to share it with me afterwards. 
Yeah, I, I can't remember we talked about this on the last last podcast. So we've decided that I'm basically your lawyer. So <laughs> when people want to talk to you, they usually come through me. And when you want to talk to people, you usually go through me. So I'm I'm pretty sure the FEA begged me to join in some capacity solely to be the communications ambassador between the FPA and you. So this is kind of my role in life. But please send feedback to both of us. We're happy to hear it. One of my favorite pieces of feedback is from Daniel O'Neill, who says it's a great podcast, but the only opinions we express are ours. So I think I'm going to start making up opinions that aren't ours and start sharing those just to keep new opinions in the mix. But we will have guests to do segments in the future as we kind of figure out how to do this. So that's something we'll definitely implement. But we're also aware that it's a lot easier to send us positive feedback than negative feedback. But really, 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 we absolutely welcome it. So please send us whatever feedback you have. You can make an anonymous email account. Send us an email at clockercounter at gmail.com. Tell us how much you hate the podcast. And and we'll listen and we'll we'll try to make it better. So with that, let's move on. So we're going to try a kind of unusual segment. This is Ryan's idea. I'm not positive it's going to work, but we're going to try it. So Ryan, you want to talk about the different ways that you talk about freestyle and talk with freestylers and how there's like different levels and scope and you want people to understand kind of your perspective on things. Yeah, it's how do other people talk to me specifically. Okay. So like James said, most of the time they go through you, James, because you're my lawyer. But I think my guess at what's happening is people don't want to hurt my feelings or are intimidated, like one of those two. Or they just don't have like an um, easy method of talking to me because like one, I'm not going to start the conversation. And That's then for just, sure. Like, sitting there at the party. <laughs> yeah. Fair, fair. Okay. So I'm going to break this down into two sections. There's like when we're at the party, I'm usually talking to people as friends. And like when we're friends, like nothing really matters. We're just like joking around. But when we're talking about the judging system or anything like competition wise, I, my brain goes into development mode, which is kind of what my brain does at work. Yeah. And a lot of how I want to, or a lot of how I like interact with people, like that interaction is based on how I interact with people at work. Fair. So, and you also have a pretty managerial role at work and a lot of your job is talking to people in a really specific way. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of freestylers don't have that kind of typical workplace experience and aren't used to kind of the natural tension that comes up when you have to do a job and think about things objectively, even though personal feelings and interest might be involved. Yeah. So I was going to start by explaining just how the gaming industry works and how it relates to, because a lot of what I do is just bringing the gaming industry into freestyle. So I think giving like a brief overview might help. I think that's a good so, idea. And and as we're talking about this, like, I actually like it more than I thought because this definitely relates to a bigger problem in freestyle in general, which is that we're a sport where we judge each other and we should be doing that in a very objective way. But a lot of times that objective task of judging and talking about results conflicts with our interpersonal relationships that we have. And maybe we need to find better tools to talk to each other about these things and keep separate our personal relationships and our objective decisions about 
judging. Yeah, that's a great point. We can make a system to make it easier for people to do the right thing. Yeah. But right now we're just focusing on the right way to talk to me. Okay. Which is a lot easier. Without question, there's an element of this podcast that's just therapy for the both of us. So <laughs> tell us tell us how the gaming industry works and how it relates to how we should talk to you. Okay. So the gaming industry is like it's all it's considered a tech field, but it's very unique in tech where it has a flat structure. So what I mean by that is they're normally in like corporate America, there's like a boss and then there's like a boss's boss and then that boss has another boss. Mm-hmm. But in gaming, there's usually just two. There's like the product owners, which are also the leads sometimes. And then there's just everyone else. And generally everyone is treated as equal. Got it. Like normally the only thing special about the, I'm going to call them product owners, are they get like the final say and they're like kind of in charge of like the overall goal. And they're the, also the ones that filter out the good ideas from the bad ideas. Okay. So that's the only thing special about them. But good ideas can come from anyone and anyone's ideas are usually, no, they are treated the same. Like it doesn't matter if it's the product owner's idea or just like anyone else's on the team's idea. They're just, they all go through the same filter with the same scrutiny, I would guess. That makes sense. So it's very democratic and very equal, but there's clarity to who has the final decision. And yeah, that's the it's not order. a democracy. It's more like the TV show House. So there's House is the boss, but he has the team of the other really smart doctors underneath him. And any of the smart doctors underneath him, or like, the, yeah, underneath him can come up with that life-saving idea. And then House is like, I think that's correct. And then they do it. Got it. That makes sense. I guess democratic was the wrong word. But I think there's, for me, it sounds like an element of this which I think a lot about in freestyle in the decisions the FAA makes. And it might not fit the house analogy, but it's not necessarily that the product owner makes the decisions because they're the smartest or have the best ideas. It's because somebody has to make the decisions and this is the person who makes them. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. That's, they need those like three skills that I talked about, but like anybody can be trained and learn those three skills and be the product owner. It's kind of the military where they're so obsessed with chain of command, not because they assume the commanders are always the best or the smartest, but the system completely breaks down unless there's somebody who can make decisions in the end. Yes, that is an important aspect of it. Okay, continue. Okay, so the next unique thing about the game industry is the multidiscipline. So we have engineers working with that are like really computer and tech oriented, working with designers who know nothing about how coding works or how computers work or how the internet works. All they care about is making good ideas and trying to get their vision fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And then we have artists that are just making art. Like they don't care about how even the design works or how the internet works. Okay. And these different disciplines have to work together to make one final product and one, uh, So like I'm a programmer. So one aspect of this is I have to interact with people who are not programmers all the time. Yeah. And there is a specific way that I think makes communication easier between disciplines. Mm -hmm. And so this is where I'll move on to like, here's how you talk to an engineer. So this applies to me, but I'm assuming it works for all engineers. Like if you're talking like a bridge builder 
or like some road engineer, I'm guessing this also would work there. Okay. But here's the trick. You start every request. You first, you phrase it as a question, but you start it with how hard is this? And then you, you say whatever you want after that, but just wait, wait, phrasing pause, it. Pause, pause. Yep. I could be wrong about this or shut me down. You've never told me that, but I feel like every time I come to you with something, I always ask you how hard it is. But maybe I'm just imagining that. I think you do. Maybe you naturally picked it up because it's a nice way to talk to anybody. I think it works even outside of engineering, but it's just like a, what it's, it does is it it's puts being both people on the same team. Yeah. It's, it's, rem- it's telling your audience that you know that they're doing the work. That's the way I think about it. So yeah. I can understand how frustrating it is when you hear the judging committee talking about all these changes that they want to make to the system. And we're thinking about it totally philosophically. But in your head, you're thinking, oh, man, here's all the things I'm going to have to do. And here's the number of hours I think this is going to take or this is going to break this other thing. And so it's really easy for us to talk about all the things we want to change. But you're the one who actually has to do it. So I try to be careful when I talk to you to say that to one, recognize that you're doing the work. And two, so you can tell me, because I think about it in my job is sometimes people will ask me to do something because they don't understand how long it takes. And because I'm in a job where how much time you spend on things is important, like you can spend too little time, but you can also spend too much time, which a lot of people aren't used to. Um, Because of that, when someone tells me to do something that I know is going to take far longer than they realize, I always have to tell them like, hey, I know you want me to do that. But if you knew that that's going to take me 150 hours, would you want to do something different? And sometimes they're like, oh, my God, if it's going to take 150 hours, let's find a better way to do it. So, okay, but that makes a lot of sense to me. That's very interesting. So that's the first thing you mentioned is phrasing things as how hard is it to do X? Exactly. Like counting, calculating cost is really complicated and unintuitive, and it instantly brings the cost aspect to the front of the conversation, which yeah. I like. And it works well because I think some people are scared to say their opinion because they could get shut down or like, I'll think they're dumb or something. Mm-hmm. But if you phrase it that way, it doesn't matter if it's a dumb opinion because we're not, I'm not, it's not like me versus you. We're both on the same side of the conversation when you're asking how hard is it? Yeah, you're just considering like, a hypothetical. If, if we did yeah. this, how difficult would it be? Yeah, so like makes things a lot easier. So that's like good in all fields. <laughs> I think it's also a good question in routine building. So I'm going to keep trying to bring this back to freestyle so it's not too esoteric, but you have to be really sensitive when you build a routine with someone to what's easy for them and what's hard for them. Because for a lot of people, it's hard to recognize or admit without prompting that something's really difficult for them. And so I think about this a lot when I play with Daniel because Daniel loves building really hard co-ops, which I think is a strength of his. But a lot of times I have to force myself to be to say to him, hey, I also would love to do this, but it's too hard for me because sometimes your partner can't intuit the difficulty of your role. And I think about this a lot when you're trying to build a hard catch for your partner and it's not working and your partner is saying, I need the set here, I need the set here, or it's, it's not working, what can you do? 
And that's when I try to remember to step up and say, I believe that you can do this catch, but this set might be too hard for me. Like the circumstances of how I'm supposed to set this to you and the position I'm supposed to set it to you is variable enough that it's my fault that this isn't going to work. And I'm going to let you know that this is too hard so we can move on. Maybe that's a stretch to <laughs> bring this back to the how hard is it? But we ask that a lot when we're building stuff. We say like, is that hard? And if the answer is no, mm -hmm. it's fine. It's like, great, let's put that in there. But if the answer is, you're like really good at this. A lot of times I say, is it hard? And you kind of go, uh, and then I'm like, okay, scrap it, scrap it. Let's move on. Like, <laughs> if you have to think about it, it's too hard. Let's try something else. Okay, but continue. Okay. All right, last point. When I'm like talking to people in development mode, I'm usually either talking to someone as a layman or as an equal. So okay. like if I'm talking to someone as an equal, you have to, I'm like going to expect that person to know all the details and know all the math, mm -hmm. which is fine if that person wants to hear all of that. But like what's tricky is when you try and mix the two. Mm -hmm. I think I mentioned this in the judging system where you got to like use the details to argue against other details, but you can't just use like a simplification to argue against other details. So that part. I see what you mean. I'm, I'm trying to think of a good example, but I get it in the sense of when people say something like, I don't like the nonlinear multiplier and difficulty because it makes difficulty count too much. And you can have that conversation on two levels. You can just say in the abstract, is difficulty counting too much because it has too big an impact on the final scores? Or you can talk about it in the details and say, is it too much that a 10 gets 15 points or something? So you can kind of talk past each other, especially if one side doesn't know the details. So if one side's saying, I don't like the linear scale, non-linear scale, but they don't know that a 10 is a 15 and a five is a 4.2, then you can kind of talk past each other because one side is talking about the details and one side is talking more universally. Exactly. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. I think that was it for me. I think that was the end of the segment. Did you want to add anything else? I don't think so. I do think there's lessons to be learned here, but the biggest one to me is understanding that when we talk, not just us, but when we're competing and we're talking as judges or we're talking about routines and assessing them, we really need to be sensitive to the fact that people should be able to talk about these things objectively without hurting people's feelings. And obviously there are better ways to talk about each other that are sensitive to people's feelings. Like we don't have to be like, oh, this person's really terrible and we hate them and they're not very good. I mean, I don't want to say that. I think that we should be able to say this person's not very good and they're still learning and this person's better than this person. That should be a part of a normal, healthy conversation about the sport that we love because it's fun for us to do it. And we're all doing it all the time. It's just usually... It's also a very growth mindset. Yeah, it's a very growth mindset. And it's in, But at the same time, I get that. We can say things in a way that's more helpful and less putting people down. But we need to be able to say these things because I think sometimes people are so cautious about how they talk about other people that it can hurt the community more and it can definitely hurt judging results. So one thing we didn't talk about much in the judging system podcast that I was kind of thinking about after the fact 
was how the politics of self-judging causes so many problems. And it's not the obvious things that are such a big problem. Like, I really like this player, so I'm going to give them a higher score than maybe they deserve. Or this person's from the same country as me, so I'm going to give them a higher score than they deserve. It's more like, hey, I'm going to feel really mean if I give this team a two because they're a new team and they're really fired up and I don't want to put them down. And I understand where people are coming from when they do that because I feel that same emotional pull, but it's not the right way to judge the teams. It causes problematic results. It skews the judging system categories, as you can see if you read the write-up that we wrote. So that creates a lot of difficulties when people do that. And I wish we were better able to say, you know what, this team deserves a one in this category because they were that much worse relative to the other teams. And it's not being mean to do that. And I hope we mm-hmm. get there. And hopefully by talking about it, we get there and, you know, things will get better. Yeah. We have this phrase at work, which is leave your ego at the door. Yeah. And it's just so important yeah. to be productive. So there was one thing about the judging system that we didn't talk about on our last podcast, but it was the first thing I thought about when we stopped doing it. And I wish I had talked about it. And I'm going to try to make this as simple as possible, and I hope people follow it. But there's this important distinction that you learn about in law school between ex-ante and ex-post. And ex-ante means before the fact, and ex-post means after the fact. And it's important in law school because sometimes you can judge something one way after the fact, but if you imagined it before the fact, you would think about it very differently. So an easy example I can think of is if you bought a lottery ticket, Ryan, and you won $500 million, after the fact, we would say, what a great idea. You you got, you bought a lottery ticket for a dollar and you won $500 million. But if we thought about it ex ante, before you bought the lottery ticket, obviously buying a lottery ticket was a terrible idea because almost certainly you would have just thrown that money away and you never would have gotten anything. (laughs) And this comes up in the judging system because there are lots of things we would like to reward after the fact organically, but if we built them into the judging system, it would result in some perverse incentives before the fact. So let me give you a real example and then a proposed change that I think would cause this problem. So the catch percentage multiplier where the more phrases you had in the routine, the less execution counted against you made a lot of sense ex post when we were looking at old tournament results and said, you know, a lot of these teams risked a whole lot and got very punished in execution. It seems like there should be a way for us to balance out the execution penalty for teams that do more phrases in their routine right? Is that accurate? Mm -hmm. Yep. The problem is as soon as you make that a rule, now it's an ex ante problem. And it is how do people change their behavior now that they know there's a benefit to having more phrases? And are the ways they change their behavior positive or negative? So in the catch percentage context, it led to some perverse incentives where teams were incentivized to basically throw the disc up with the least amount of risk and hit a lot of really basic catches 
to get as many phrases as possible for the catch multiplier. That's not what we intended. We intended to reward people who organically or naturally had more phrases. But once you create that incentive, people start trying to abuse it. So a lot of times in law, when we talk about, when we talk about ex ante, the question we're asking is, how does making this a rule change people's behavior? And here's a prospective example. Some people have suggested, and I used to be a big advocate for this, that risk should be its own category in the judging system. An ex post that makes a lot of sense. You look at all the routines and you say, hey, you know, this routine maybe had a little bit worse execution and maybe a little bit worse difficulty, but they took so many risk and risk is really exciting and we should reward that as a judging system. But then if you think about it ex ante, what are the effects of giving teams higher scores for taking lots of risk? You might start to see some really wild stuff that results in lower quality routines. So if instead of saying, hey, here's a combo that's a little bit harder and has more variety and has more AI, and it happens to be safer so that we know we can hit it and we'll have a cleaner, better routine. Now the team's thinking, well, I need to get risk score. So how can we make this? Let's just make it all upside down or let's make it the opposite spin or whatever. There's lots of ways you can make things more risky. So I'm actually still open to risk as a category of the judging system because I do think there's something to be said for it. But that's what I'm worried about is would people start making high variance routines where nine times out of 10, they don't work because there's value in just being risky for the sake of being risky. Yeah, it's hard to, I mean, that's like an idea that we would vet and part of the process is gathering all of those ideas and I mean, we could talk about it right now because what I would say is we have a hard enough time judging difficulty. Like how are we going to judge risk? Yeah. And it seems fairness, even more nebulous. Yeah. And risk has technically always been part of difficulty. So I think it even says in the manual that difficulty should, difficulty judges should consider risk in assigning difficulty mm-hmm. scores. And if it's not in there, someone tell me and we'll make sure it gets updated because that's always been a big part of it. But you think, it would be hard to judge risk, right? Yeah, it would basically be double downing on spinning, I think. Because it would be things that are easily, like easy to see risk, but score well. And then do you think, how do you think it would change players' behavior? And that's a little bit of a loaded question because it might be about finding the right balance of not incentivizing it too much. But do you think that, do you think, well, I should say it this way, do you think there's a way to reward risk in a judging system that would make routines overall better. Hmm. I don't think we have that problem currently. Like, I don't think we have really safe routines right now. Like, that's not the current meta. It's like, like that's not an issue in the current meta of the judging system. Yeah, but it was for sure under the old judging system, right? Yeah. So we've like already fixed this problem. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, that's certainly the benefit of having difficulty count more because difficulty pretty much no matter how you cut it has a lot of elements of risk in it. And one thing I should say, just to clarify, when we've talked about how, when we build routines, we were always, this is safer than this other option, but it's harder. So we should do it. And that's a little bit oxymoronic to be clear. It wasn't necessarily that we were doing things that were less risky. It was more personalized. So 
it's like this move or combo for me is safer than other moves because these are the moves that are familiar to me. So I'll give you a good example. I'm not even sure if this is accurate anymore, but this is probably a terrible example. Tell me this is a dumb example. But if I had to choose between doing a double spinning barrel guidance and a double spinning fleming guidance, for many years, it was way safer for me to do a double spinning fleming guidance, but it was probably similar levels of difficulty, if not the same level of difficulty, if not more difficulty under some judging seats, because I was more comfortable with that move. That doesn't mean that's an easier move or a harder move than a double spinning barrel guidance. But if I had to choose between them, that's the one that felt safer. Now, luckily, I don't know if that's true anymore. I think I've balanced them out more, but definitely for many years, it was true. Okay. Now that makes sense. I think it's important that the spread between the diff of the two moves are pretty similar. I thought you were going to go double spinning Scarecrow and double spinning Flaming Guidus because those are very similar, but like you always catch the, the Scarecrow. You say that, but in my head, I feel less comfortable going for a double spinning Scarecrow. Look, they're both pretty comfortable moves. I do. I like spinning. I like those two moves in particular, but it's a more unique set, the double spinning crow, because it's a much higher flatter set than almost anything else I do. And because it's only for the double spinning crow, I don't use it as much. So that part makes me a little bit uncomfortable. But a bigger problem with that move is that the way it can go wrong is much more damaging. And this is a good freestyle pointer in general that we should talk about later of it's not just assessing what's the risk I screw this up or drop it. It's what happens when I screw this up? So if I screw up a double spinning Fleming Guidus, it's either going to hit my hand and hit the floor, or it's going to hit the floor and be right in front of me and I can just pick it up and move on. If I miss a double spinning Scarecrow, there's a chance that I do a double spinning Scarecrow brush and send that disc flying <laughs> into the crowd, which even if the risk were lower of that, the, the damage of it is so high that the expected value is far worse. So a great probability term, by the way, for freestylers is expected value, which is the probability of it occurring multiplied by the outcome. So there's a lot of times where maybe I have a 90% success rate with this move, but the 10% drop is a horrific outcome. And so it's a really bad expected value versus here's a move that has a 50% success rate but if i mess it up it has a very minor outcome that isn't so bad so i would always take the move that i'm less likely to hit that has a least bad outcome versus the move that i'm certainly going to hit but if i don't hit it it's really bad and a great example of this is like flat kicks flat kicks are can go so wrong like it's like if you miss your flat kick at the beginning of a combo it can just lose all of its spin and hit the ground. And if you're indoors, it can roll away. And that's why a lot of times it's scary to put your hardest move right at the beginning of a combo if it's a move that the drop is bad. Now, on the flip mm -hmm. side, the later you put the hard move in your combo, the less spin you have and control. So there's a trade-off there. But a lot of times I see routines where there's something really risky right at the beginning of a combo. And I think boy, when that goes wrong, it goes really wrong. And you should consider that. But anyways, that's my uh, ex-ante, ex-post 
analysis. <laughs> and I just think about it. Whenever you think about any proposed change, don't think about just how it would affect things that have already happened. Think about how would this change behavior? That's what I always ask myself. How would this change people's behavior? And is that change a good change or is that change a bad change? So that's it. Okay. Okay. I think like, go ahead, go ahead. A recurring thing in the podcast will be cost analysis. What you did there is just an explanation of cost analysis in this one situation. That's going to be the theme of this podcast, I think. I know. And I think a lot of people are going to misunderstand it because they're going to think it's so technical and analytic-y. But the truth is, it's what we're all doing all the time. We're just not always understanding what we're doing or we're not being this fine-grained about it. But if you are, if you start thinking about it a little more and being more thoughtful about it, I think you can make better decisions and have better outcomes. And you can use these tools, these analytically mathematical tools to make better art. And I know that sounds so, it's, it sounds like math is so antithetical to producing a more beautiful routine, but that's not really true. You can, I think if, ugh, I'm, I'm on a little bit of a rant here, but a lot of times people <laughs> build routines that in theory are so magnificent but the problem is the expected value of hitting that routine is so low that on average, the routine is far worse than another routine. So there's so many times where I built routines with people where I hate having to tell them that I think this is a fantastic idea and I love all the content you want to put in this routine. But the truth is with the time we have, with the skills we have, with the conditions we're going to have, this routine, how it's actually going to play out is going to be far worse than a less magnificent routine <laughs> that we can actually count on hitting. And I know that's disappointing to hear. And believe me, I wish that I could always fulfill my greatest visions of a freestyle routine. But at a certain point, you have to be practical. And I think about someone is going to watch this and I'm going to have to watch this at some point. And do I want to watch something that could have been magnificent, but was a disaster because five things we planned were impossible and we dropped four of them and it killed all the excitement of our routine. Or do I want to watch something that was just really solid and had really great moments and felt really comfortable and isn't making me cringe because of all <laughs> the huge screw ups. So yep. that's just kind of yeah. how I see it. <laughs> I know this episode's all about communication. Like We'll talk about this in the routine building episode, but at the start of your routine building, you should talk to your partner and be like, what do we want to do? Do we want the highest expected value routine or do we want to swing for the home run and be like, we're going big or we're going home? Like those are things you should talk about with your partners at the start of routine building. That's a great point. And we definitely need to do the routine building podcast. And the only other thing I'll add to that is I always try to have the conversation with my partners, especially if I've never played with them before of, what are your goals? Do you, even before I get to, do you want the highest expected value routine or the home run routine? But I ask, do you want to win? Do you want to have fun? Do you want to be showcased as much as possible? Do you want to feel as comfortable as possible? I ask these really basic questions to try to figure out what they want out of it. And then I try to tailor the routine building to that. Now, I don't always do this if I'm not driving the bus, as Randy used to always say. So like if I'm playing with you or like, especially when I was early in my career and I was playing with Paul Kenny or Matt Gauthier or Jake Gauthier, 
they were the best players. I was learning from them and I just did whatever they told me. But now when I'm playing with new players and I'm kind of taking my Paul Kenny mentor hat on, I definitely try to figure out what does this person want and let's figure out how to do that. I also do this for hat tournaments. And because there's something like unfair for me, let me put on my arrogant hat. Like I'm always happy to sound like a jerk because like we talked about before, I want to be honest about things and objective about things. When I play with a hat tournament with somebody, especially someone who's pretty good, but maybe hasn't won before, I always say like, if you want to win this tournament, I will put us in the position to win this tournament. But that might not be what you want. And I want you to feel comfortable saying, you want me to make you look good because I can also do that. We'll probably place worse if I spend the routine setting you up. But I'm also happy to do that because I don't need to win this random hat tournament in this random country with 10 teams, believe me. <laughs> and I will say, and I'm kind of bummed about this, 100 times out of 100, they say, I want to win. And I say, okay, you're going to do some awesome stuff, but I'm going to feel comfortable going for it. And that's generally worked. But I'm still waiting and I'm totally open. And sometimes I kind of gauge like, okay, they're telling me that, but I think they have another goal. But I think it's totally valid to be like, no, I want to have a routine that I am proud of and I want to look like the star and I don't need you overshadowing me or something. That's a totally <laughs> valid thing to want in a routine. Yep. Aren't you playing with Ilka next year? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You're just going <laughs> to let that hang out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we, we actually did have a conversation, but I still think we're kind of talking about what we want from the routine. But I, I do think she's someone who probably would not want me just out there blithering. Like whatever the freestyle version of, blithering is i'm not gonna she's probably not gonna want me to do that which is totally valid anyways moving on from that we have gotten a lot of questions from people and we want to keep getting questions so please keep sending them to us send it to clockercounter@gmail.com or message us wherever you can find us uh one thing i'll say is if you send us a question let us know if you prefer your question to be anonymous otherwise we will assume you're comfortable with us sharing your name. And with that said, I'm generally going to keep the questions that we received here anonymous. I have a feeling a lot of these people wouldn't care if we said their name, but we don't know for sure, so we won't use them. So I will start with a question from a relatively new player who's also really moving up the rankings here in terms of how great a player this is and start with you, Ryan. The question is, how have you managed to stay outside of your comfort zone over time? And I let me give you some context for this question. I was sort of talking to this player about how if you want to be a great player, you have to keep growing. And part of growing is not letting yourself fall into your comfort zone where you do the moves you already know how to do all the time and you're not trying new things. And this person's question was, well, how do I stay out of my comfort zone? How do I keep trying new <laughs> things? So what kind of advice do you have for that? Okay, I'll just start with what I have done, which is cross train. So like I do gymnastics and I take dance, which I never did as a kid. So I had to start as an adult. Yeah. And being in those of uh, like, I don't know, atmospheres, like it, I'm uncomfortable there. And then I can bring the things I learned while I was uncomfortable 
over to freestyle. And it's kind of like, like I don't have to be uncomfortable in my freestyle exactly freestyle like world. Yeah. I can be uncomfortable somewhere else and take those learnings back to freestyle and integrate them in. Do you think there's value in just doing anything where you're not very good at all the time, even if it's not freestyle? Because I definitely like it just in life. I think it's very valuable. Yeah, right. So every day I think, you know, it's funny. Obviously, freestyle is a small sport. It's niche. I'm going to say this a thousand times. I get that being really great at freestyle is not the same as being really great at basketball or something where millions and millions of people are doing it. So I think that keeps me relatively grounded. Of, I'm never going to take myself too seriously for being really good at freestyle. But with that said, I still do a lot of things that I'm really bad at all the time. And I think those can keep you grounded. And those can keep you in that mindset of not... Because taking yourself too seriously has a lot of bad effects. One, it makes you kind of a jerk and people don't like you very much. But two, it gives you an overconfidence that can lead to a fixed mindset. Hmm. And we'll talk more about growth and fixed mindset. But one of the worst things about having a fixed mindset is you're afraid to try new things or things that you might fail at because those will negatively impact your opinion of yourself. So if you think I'm the best freestyler ever, I'm so good at this, I'm better than all these other people, and you're in the jam, you're going to be afraid to try that thing that you might drop and look like an idiot because it's going to destroy this image you have of yourself as the best at this. But I think if you're doing other things where you're constantly getting destroyed because you're not very good at it, it kind of keeps that muscle strong of I'm okay Mm -hmm. to be bad at this. Because I actually think this is one of my pet peeves of mine. I feel like a lot of the best players do avoid situations that make them look bad. So I think when the conditions are bad, all the newbie players are out there grinding. (laughs) They don't care at all. But a lot of the new players are like, oh, I'm resting and they're chilling. Okay, I have a habit to combat this. Okay. So I call it the once a jam move. Mm -hmm. And... You can go into a jam and you have your hard move that you're worried about dropping. And before you do it, you'll be like, all right, I'm pulling out my once a jam move and you do it. And if you hit it, you feel really good. And it's like you saved your, your wish or whatever your token, your yeah. try. But if you drop it, you're like, oh, that was my once a jam move. I won't, I'm not going to do that again. So like, you're not busting the jam. It's like exciting because there's like stakes all of a sudden. Yeah. And you got to practice the move in like a comfortable setting where dropping it or like doing something bad is somewhat expected. So you can build that habit with like a, you can build like that muscle with like this habit. That's a great idea. I do something similar, which is if I'm trying a new pass, I say, come in, I think. (laughs) It's just, I'm I'm like (laughs) trying to signal that like, I'm going to try something that might not work. And I was thinking about this today because one of the new freestylers did that. He said, come in, I think. And I was like, oh, it's catching on. It, it, it works. It kind of frees you up to do it. But I actually have so many thoughts, not surprisingly, about this subject. And we might have to address them, some of them more in another podcast, because I think we do a whole episode on this and it's important. But a few things that come to mind for me are, one, knowing your jam environment. So I think your home turf, your home jam, you should be much more open and comfortable to playing outside your comfort zone. So that's part of having a good jam community is having one where people feel like 
they can keep trying new things and growing. But you should be a little bit more careful about what you're trying at the tournament or the special occasion where the job really is to make the best jam possible. And we'll come back to this because one of the questions later is about flow and jams. So I think sometimes think about your environment and you should be more comfortable in your home jam trying new things. I also think there's a cadence to jams. And a lot of times at the end of the day is when people start getting a little more wild and trying different things. And we talked about this before, like we used to call it spin practice because we were practicing all of our spinning catches. And when you see other people experimenting, I think it opens you up to experiment more. And you can kind of get to a point where, and I think this is a good thing, it's no longer really a jam and it's more like we're all trying things. So I'll actually tell you today we had a jam and I was working on at the end of the day and we played for three hours today. I was really exhausted and all the upperclassmen had left. So it was just freshmen, really new players. And so for them, everything they do is new and they're dropping it constantly. And most of the time I treat that as an opportunity where I have to do whatever I can to make the jam good. It's like, I'm going to do whatever I can so that it's not awkward silence because we're dropping it over and over again. But today I just dug in and I practiced Fortress, the new catch. And I swear I dropped a hundred in a row. Just every time someone threw it to me, I went for Fortress and I dropped it. And the amazing thing about it was the freshmen started cheering me on like I cheer them on. So they kept being like, oh, that was so close. Or you oh, you almost had that. It was in your hands. By the way, they were not close at all. <laughs> but it's like, it was fun for them in the same way it's fun for me to watch them learning something new. So... I think there's space for that. And then I'll also tell a story that really affected me that I've never forgotten for some reason. And I'm sorry all my stories involve Matt Gothier. But there was a Super Hain event where there was an individual comp- competitive format where each player got three tries to do a move. And there's lots of different strategies for that. So some people try to do, try to get on the board and have a, a hard move that they feel comfortable doing. And then they try wild stuff. And Matt Gothier goes up and he tries this spinning leg over hammer pull off the throw. Goes for the first one, bounces off his finger, he drops it. Second one goes for the exact same move, bounces off his finger, drops it. Third one goes for it again, last try, bounces off his finger, drops it. He shrugs and walks off the field. And when I saw that, I my life was changed. I just thought, here's someone who has so much at stake in terms of reputation. Everyone's expecting him to dominate this. And he wants to try something really hard and really cool. And he's not worried about screwing it up every single time and losing this competition. And I try to think about that all the time because there's lots of times, especially if I go to a new place, like I went to Toronto for the first time this year. So I'm playing in front of a lot of freestylers who have never seen me play before. And the conditions were kind of bad with the wind and it would have been really easy for me to just sit down or my least favorite thing that top players do where they don't try anything. They're just like, oh, I'm going to just zing (laughs) it over here and catch it behind the back. And they're almost not even deigning to really try and freestyle. It's like, I know I'm going to go out here and I'm going to try all the stuff I want to try. And, you know, the wind is going to beat me up and someone's going to say, I can't believe this guy's supposed to be good. He's terrible. And I'm just not going to worry about that. And one of your mottos that you taught me is don't play for today, play for five years from now. So don't worry about how it's going right now and how you feel right now. 
if what you're doing now is going to set you up to be a better player in five years, then it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So where did you learn that idea? I'm not sure where and when I came up with that. I think it was more like before, it was way back early in the freestyle career. Yeah. I was like, before I won a world championship, I was like, what do I need to do to win worlds in three years when it seems feasible? Yeah. I think it just stemmed from there. Because I've definitely thought about that a lot. And we talked about it when we were both going through our disc golf phase. And a disc, disc golf is a good example because it makes more sense of how it plays out practically. So in disc golf, you have a 40-foot putt, which is kind of a hard putt for a new player. If you're playing to have your best score today, you will lay up right in front of the basket and then put it in. So it'll take two strokes. But you would always say, no, we're going to go for it every time. And we're probably going to have three putts or four putts, but we're practicing so that one day when we have the 40-foot putt, we know we can sink it. So we're sacrificing our score today. We're going to have a lower score because we're going for it. But in the future, we'll be better players because we're playing the way we're supposed to play if we were good. So I think there is definitely a lot of value in that. And then one other thing that I've thought about a lot on this subject is, and let me remind us our subject of how do you keep growing as a freestyler and stay out of your comfort zone is it's not how good you get in year one. It's how good you get in year five. And that's, that's an arbitrary number year five, year six, whatever. But a lot of people get really caught up in the first year and in both ways. So sometimes someone comes out, they're a new player. They've been playing one or two years and they're incredible. And we're all like, Oh my God, this is going to be the best player in the world. And by the way, that they're always wrong in my experience. (laughs) Like how many times have we said that? And then, we come back 10 years later, we're like, oh, no, like they're an average freestyler. Then there's the flip side, which I think is more important of someone who seems totally unremarkable at the beginning. But one day, 10 years later, they have a huge period of growth and they become an all-time freestyler. So a good example of the latter is Graf Mordi, who's one of the best freestylers ever. And he was just at least from my perspective and what I hear from people talking about him, just another Berlin jammer until 2010 or 2011. And then in his thirties, he went on a run and started practicing all the time and playing all the time and went from any other decent German freestyler to a multi-time world champion. And a lot of people don't do that. Most people stop getting good at freestyle at a certain point and they never get better again. And I think one of the main reasons is that they they play safe. They play in their comfort zone and they never try to learn new things. Yep. And some that of it's makes sense. Some of it's math, <laughs> right, Ryan? Like I think about this when I have brand new freestylers, literally every single move they do is out of their comfort zone. So when we are freestyling for 3 hours, they have 3 hours outside of their comfort zone and they're learning like your just siphoning information inlining directly to their brain. They cannot help mm-hmm. but learn. <laughs> Whereas most freestylers 99 to 99.999% of their jam for that three hours, they're doing things that they already know how to do. Again, it's a balance. I don't want you to come out there and jam with me and only do stuff you don't know how to do <laughs> for sure. But if you want to keep growing, you have to find space to stay out of your comfort zone. 
And then the last thing on this, again, I think we'll have to do a whole podcast on it at some point. There's one obvious answer that we haven't addressed, which is you can be completely out of your comfort zone outside of the gym. So if you want to get better at this, practice. It's that simple. I mean, when I'm practicing by myself, I am not sitting there practicing things I know how to do. I think that would bore me. I would exhaust myself. I am always doing something that I'm really bad at to try to get better at it. And I feel unfortunate. I've been practicing less now than I used to. But practice, no one's going to yell at you for dropping it over and over again. So that's the safest space to be outside of your comfort zone. Fair? Okay, cool. Um, I have one more thing to add. Please do. I love this topic. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You should ask for feedback. Mm. And when you get feedback, just take the feedback. Like no matter what it is, you should just accept it first and then think about it afterwards and then try and incorporate like was it good feedback or not or whatever. But when you ask for feedback, make sure you take it initially. Paul Kenny told me once that you shouldn't practice what you're good at. You should practice what you're bad at. And you have a hard time knowing what you're bad at. So you have to ask people what they think it is and like ask a bunch of people because everyone sees things differently and there'd be blind spots. So you have to ask like a variety of people to figure out what you're missing. And that's a classic growth mindset strategy, right? Because a lot of people don't take feedback well because they come up with all the reasons in their head that the feedback isn't really accurate or doesn't apply to them. You know, it's like, oh, well, they told me my form wasn't very good, but I was having a bad day that day. They didn't see my real form. But like you said, it's somebody had the impulse to tell you this thing or you asked for it and they thought about it and they gave it to you and it might hurt you in the moment, but you have to accept it. So I'll give you a good, very embarrassing example, but it was really important to me. So I don't know exactly what year it was. I was probably, I'd probably been playing for at least five years, maybe six years and won world titles, been number one in the world, been to the mountaintop. And I was jamming with Roger Meyer one day and I throw at him and he just grabs the disc out of the air and he looks at me and he just says, you suck at throwing. <laughs> he's like, it's <laughs> just like your throw is so bad. And I, I think like a light bulb went off in my head and I, I think I'd always suspected this, but I wasn't really <laughs> sure. And I was like, oh no, this is so bad. And then I spent the next year doing everything in my power to get better at it. And, and I did, and I still think I can get better at it, but believe me that when I say it wasn't a pleasant experience to hear from someone I looked up to that even though I'm supposed to be one of the best freestylers in the world, I can't do the most basic thing well. But I didn't make excuses. I just tried to get better at it. Mm -hmm. Now you can almost throw 995. I can. Well, I can't throw 995 with non-standard throws, but now my backhand breaks. It's like, it's between like 910 and 920. And some of that was even recently, we were practicing with a Z meter and Brendan, a brand new freestyler, I mean, he's been playing a few years now. Brendan gave me a tip and it would have been really easy for me to be like, well, I'm one of the best freestylers in the world. I'm not going to listen to this kid. But first of all, I asked him, I was like, how, like, what are you doing? You have such a great throw so early. What are your tips? And he gave me a tip and it helped me. And I added 20 to 30 RPM to my throw right away. So 
You should tell everyone what the tip is. So the tip was, don't look where you're throwing. You already know. Which is funny because that's a tip I've given to people about max. But it also applies to regular throws. And to be clear and to jump in front of somebody, you might say, you still aim it. I, I think about where I want to throw it before I throw it. But I know where Ryan is standing. And I know where his right hand is that I want to throw it to. And I just picture that in my head and I throw it to him. And I think that allows you to do a couple things. One, I think it helps your body mechanics that you don't have to turn your head a certain way to look at them. And two, you can close your eyes or whatever, but you can more focus on what you're trying to do. And it instantly, and I mean instantly and consistently added 20 to 30 RPM to all my throws. And I honestly think my accuracy improved because there's something a little bit unnatural about looking where you're throwing. And isn't it true that in disc golf, you're not really supposed to look when you drive it? Yeah, you don't look on the backhand. Yeah, so if disc golfers, and the whole point of what they do is accuracy, when they drive the disc, don't look where they're throwing, they aim it beforehand and with their mechanics, then we probably shouldn't either. So I would say this is a pro-level tip. Like You should learn how to throw looking at your target first, and then you apply this tip on top of that. So there's some requirements before. You can't just start with an inaccurate throw. That's fair. I don't know if it's right, but we'd have to experiment. It's definitely interesting. Yeah. But part of all this is check your ego at the door. Like you said earlier, if you have an ego about someone new showing you how to do something or just accepting other people's feedback, you won't get better. And maybe one, one last thing that's really quick. <laughs> Every time you see a move you want to learn, just learn it. It's that simple. Every year after Worlds, I just pick all the moves that I saw that I thought were cool. And I try to learn it and I might never do them again, but I try to do it at least a few times to get the hang of it. And that's an easy way. Cause I it always kills me when people say like, I don't know what else to work on. Like, Are you kidding me? I've been doing this for 12 years and I literally have a whiteboard filled with things that I want to learn that I haven't learned. I know it's okay if it takes a long time to learn. Like if you don't have success learning something for the months, it's still months, okay months to spend nothing, that time. Ryan. Yeah. I'm actually glad you said that. Cause I forgot about this. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got in life, period, not about freestyle, was life is long. One of my law school professors told me that once. And he said it in the context of, don't worry about veering off your career path to do something for a few years because you have so much time to do everything you want that when you look back, it's not going to seem like a big deal. And he's right. But in the context of freestyle, I tell this to all my new freestylers because they might be trying to learn the delay or, or a lot of times after a few months, the freestylers ask me, where am I? How am I doing relative to other people who've been doing this for a few months? And I'm like, don't worry about that. It doesn't matter what you do now. You have 10 years to learn this. And then after that, you'll have another 10 years to keep getting better. <laughs> and there are so many moves that I worked on for years, years before they were finally moves that I was comfortable enough to do in a jam or a competition. I am sure that I worked on the double flaming gytosis for three or four years before I did it in competition. And that felt totally normal and that time flew by. And the way I mark it, so I made these study tapes for years. Everyone who listens to this probably knows that. And sometimes I'll go back and see a study tape from six years ago and I'll be I'll realize, oh I thought I had just started working on that move, but clearly I started <laughs> working on it six years ago and I'm just now getting comfortable with it. And that's totally fine. And take your time to learn things. So I think that's good advice. 
Okay, I think we should do one more question, and then we'll okay. we'll save the other ones for another time. This is another question I really like. I'm almost tempted to save it for another episode, but I'm we're just gonna pack this episode with good questions. So this question is, what is flow? How do you build it? And how do you not break it? Hmm. This is a good question. I haven't put a lot of thought into this, but I think, I think it's like dance. So in dance, there's lots of different kinds of dance. Like there's ballet and there's hip hop and then there's salsa mm -hmm. and they all have a sense of flow, but it's different in every kind of dance. Yeah. And so we would have to define what is the freestyle Frisbee flow. And that's just something we decide. Because right now we have, I mean, or we used to have that category of flow mm -hmm. in the jetting system. And I think that was just like, is your name flow? <laughs> that was like a good representation of that category. Yeah, I used to really have problems with the flow category. It was a classic. In theory, I really liked it. And I hated being the person advocating against it because it sounds really bad to be like, hey, I don't think we should have a, I don't think we should judge people's flow when everyone agrees that flow is this really good thing. But I didn't like it as a category because no one could define it well. And I think a lot of people, especially people who didn't even speak English, literally didn't know what it meant. And it caused a lot of problems and it turned into basically a second execution score. Putting all that aside, flow is very interesting. It's something that a lot of freestylers talk about and really value. And I'm going to diverge for a second. And I'm curious what you think about this. There is a field of psychology devoted to the study of flow. Are you familiar with this at all? I don't think so. So there's a famous psychologist. I will never be able to pronounce his name. If you look up his name, it's a series of randomly generated consonants. And I have no idea how to say his name. But he wrote, I, I, he's like Serbian or Polish or something. He wrote all about flow. And even though his definition of understanding of flow is not unique to freestyle and is a little bit more general, I actually think his definition of flow fits really well into freestyle and what we're all trying to achieve. And I think it relates to this question because especially since flow is no longer a category of the judging system, we could talk about flow as something that's important to having good jams and there are concrete ways to get there. Cause I think that my biggest problem with everything was that it was very mystical because sometimes freestyle and Frisbee can get very hippy dippy and mystical and people talk about concepts in ways that are really unhelpful to people. So we can be critical of new players for breaking the flow and not having good flow, but then we fail to explain to them how they can possibly be better. <laughs> and I always wanted to be, I always wanted to find ways to make it concrete to say, here's what it is and here's how you do it better. So let's, let me explain to you the psychology concept as best as I can. I'm not going to get it exactly right. I'm not an expert in it. And then we can talk about how it relates to freestyle. So flow, the easiest definition of flow is flow is the feeling you get when you lose your sense of time while you do something. And that feeling is associated with doing things in a very particular way. And the author of this research says that anything you do can be done in a flow state. It can be done brushing your teeth, but it can also be done as a concert pianist. But generally, the people who are best at something perform it in a flow state. But there 
here are some of the characteristics. So I actually, I looked this up so I didn't get them wrong. And this is someone else trying to explain it. So they might not explain it exactly how the author would explain it, but it involves complete concentration. That makes sense to me. You'll appreciate this one, Ryan. Clarity of goals, <laughs> immediate feedback, and a clear reward in mind. We'll come back to that. I already mentioned a transformation of time. Usually it, it speeds up. Like you, you, you usually lose your sense of time. It's like, wow, I can't believe we just jammed for two hours. But it can also be slowing down of that feeling you get when you're in a, doing a really difficult double spinning catch, but you feel like you have all the time in the world to do it. It's usually something that's intrinsically rewarding. It's effortless. This one's important that I want to talk about. There is a perfect balance between your skill level and the challenge that you are facing. Hmm. Um, this one's a little more mystical, but actions and awareness are merged, losing self-conscious rumination. I do get that. Like you're not, I'm not thinking about my life's problems when I'm having a good freestyle jam. And then finally, there's a feeling of control over the task. So these have some overlaps, but to me, the biggest takeaway is if you are challenged and your skills meet that challenge and you are performing well, losing your sense of time, you feel in control of the disc, you feel like the disc is doing everything you want it to do. There's that total con concentration. The jam keeps going. There aren't big pauses while you drop the disc and clean it up. That's when a jam has flow. Do you think that's right? Ryan? I think so. So I, what you described was all like self-diagnosing. It's like, am I in the flow state? But I took the question, like, how do you judge flow in a, like, can you judge if that team is in the flow state? So I'm like, I mean, the question is how to build it and how not to break it. But I think all this, all these concepts apply in the team setting. And actually this random webpage I pulled up has a whole section called don't flow alone. So even though it's individual, obviously in a jam, everyone is involved in contributing to this. So if our skill levels are really imbalanced, but we're trying things all at a more difficult level, we're not going to have flow because every time I give you an impossible set to do when you're a new oh, player, that makes sense. you're going to screw up. I was thinking up. like, are we talking about flow in the jam or flow the category? No, the I'm abandoning system? the category because the category okay. is gone. And okay. based on the context of the question, I think it's about having flow in your jams. Okay. I mean, it even relates to the last question. If You should be in your comfort zone to have flow, but you should also be challenged. And again, it's about finding a challenge that meets your skill level. So this is a common problem at work, right? So if you get a task that's too difficult for you, it's very stressful and it's not very rewarding. If you get a task that's too easy for you, it's boring and not very rewarding. So the best times at work, which also applies to other things, so it's about flow, is when you have a challenge that you're just able to meet. And it makes sense that a good freestyle jams like that, because we've had times, you and me, where we're jamming and objectively, the jam is great. We're catching everything, we're hitting our good moves, but we're both just kind of not feeling it and we're bored. And I think that's mm -hmm. the jam where we are not challenging ourselves and our skills are far over the level of the jam. And I'm talking about just me and you. Like I'm thinking very specifically about a jam we had at Beach Weekend many, many years ago 
where I'm like, we're shredding, but it's just, we're not having a good time. And I think it's because we were so focused on catching and honestly recruiting other people to join our jam that we weren't pushing ourselves. So it wasn't fun. On the flip side, the jam we had recently at Beach Weekend that was so awesome was I think we were pushing ourselves and we were meeting that challenge. So we were going for really hard moves and combinations and we were just hitting them. And that's what made it so fun. But so practically, that's something you should think about in a jam, that if your goal is flow state, which it shouldn't always be, if you're trying to grow, yes, flow can help you grow. But if you're practicing, you're probably not going to have that much flow all the time because I don't know. I don't want to say that. I do think there's a way to get better and be meeting the challenge. But I also think it's okay to have a jam where there's no flow because you're really pushing yourself super hard mm-hmm. and you're not yeah, meeting different goals. Yeah. yeah. So like, but if your goal is to have flow, try to determine what you do based on this concept of, I want the things I go for to be right at the limit of my skills, not above it, not below it. That's important Two, If I want to have complete concentration and focus and not break out of this trance, I do want to catch it more often than not. So it's a lot easier to have flow if you're catching it. So that's important. But if you're not catching it, keep it moving. Don't dwell on it. Don't pick up the disc, hold it for 10 seconds, complain, curse, and then throw it. <laughs> it's actually something that really bothers me. And I'm, I do it for sure. Sometimes you need that break to reset, take a moment, breathe, regroup. But a lot of times people drop it and they really take their time to go get the disc and wait 10 seconds for the music to start up again and throw it. And it's no, if you want to keep the flow going, keep it moving. There's a way to drop it and keep things moving that doesn't break the trance, right? Yep. And then freestyle already has a lot of things built in. You get immediate feedback. You catch it or you drop it. You hit the move or you don't. Clarity of the goal is a little trickier, but I think it's okay for your goal to, I think it's okay for your goal to be to have a good jam where everyone's having a good time. And the feeling of control is a big one. I think in freestyle that plays out most in the conditions. And I hate to say that, but when the conditions are good, I feel like flow is much easier to achieve because I am able to control the circumstances to make the jam good. But if the conditions are sufficiently bad, I no longer have that control because no matter what you do at a certain point, if the wind gusts, you might not be able to do anything about it. And that can really break your flow. Do you think it's harder to get into the flow state now than it was back when you were just learning? That's a tricky question because on the one hand, I do think the challenge part of it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder to find the challenge that meets my skill. It's almost like there's this big gap now where anything I want to learn that I haven't already learned is really hard. And Diminishing returns. Yeah, so it's like when you're at the beginning, it's really nice because I can go up to my new players and I can give them five moves, all of which they'll hit today. But for me, a lot of things I work on, they are moves that I know are going to take me five years to learn. So it's hard to incrementally or slowly incorporate them into a jam in the sense of creating challenges that I can satisfy. It's either everything, let me put it more simply, everything I can already do is too boring and everything that I can't do is so far beyond my ability to do right now 
that it's not in that happy flow state. But with that said, that's where I can use other people though, because my flow state now depends a lot on not my own challenges, but how I can challenge the people around me and how I can get them going. So that's another angle you can take. Okay. So like, especially with the upperclassmen who are better freestylers now, like Will and I had a long jam today and it was all counter at Will's request, which I was very impressed with growth mindset on his part for sure. And it was a rare time that it was just the two of us people, other people came later and my flow state was about seeing that we were getting four or five, six catches in a row, even though we were playing counter and he's not as used to that. And that was really satisfying. And I wasn't so focused on myself. There's also other challenges of like working with the music, for instance, Mm -hmm. finding ways to feel like you're doing a routine, even though it's all spontaneous. I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. And that's another little flow hack is go song by song. That breaks a little bit of the concept of having one long period of flow. But certainly if you're out of flow, you can always reset when there's a new song and say, I'm going to make this song my masterpiece and <laughs> and find a way to make it cool. I like the term flow hacks. Like I was trying to think of other ones like catch 10 in a row. I think that's instant puts you puts me into the instant flow state. Yeah. So we've done that a lot. I got that from Teddy and I passed that along to you. But every time Teddy and I had a few drops in a row, we would say, okay, 10 in a row. And it would basically be a challenge. Who's going to drop it first? Or can we actually get to 10 in a row? And more often than not, we did get to 10 in a, a row, which was always an interesting sign of like, oh, we're capable of catching it all the time. <laughs> but sometimes for lots of different reasons, some good, some bad, we're not catching it. But catching easy flow hack, not lingering on drops, I think is an easy flow hack. Resetting with the music, is a flow hack. I also think shorter combos are a little bit of a flow hack. This might be my own bias, but I do think getting some really quick, comfortable co-ops and then building from there helps sort of stimulate flow for me and get things moving. And then this one obviously has a limit. This is more, there's probably a Russian doll effect of flow. There's like low level flow and then high level flow, meaning like you can have a really good flow for the next 10 seconds, but also are you keeping flow the entire jam? So a, a mid-level flow hack is start easy, get harder and harder as you go along. I think that that works really well. And then you drop it and then you reset. Go back to easy stuff and then build back up to hard stuff. Yeah, I like this question. Is there anything else about flow that you can think of or any other flow hacks? Uh, I have a theoretical question. Okay. Let's say there's a jam in the flow state. Do you think from an out external, someone watching that jam, it looks better than a f- jam not in the flow state? A hundred percent. And if people could consistently recognize it or be trying to recognize it, that would be my rule about jam busting. It has far less to do with the skill of the players in the jam and has far more to do with, are they in a flow state? And we usually talk about, this, are they hot? Like, are they getting hot? If they're hot, they're probably in a flow state and leave them alone you're definitely going to break up their flow if you go in there even if you're 10 times better than them i think i think about this if i see far worse players than me in a flow state i'm not busting their jam until i see the break in flow which is definitely good advice in general and if you're uncomfortable with can i assess whether there's a flow state wait till there's three or four drops in a row back to back mm-hmm. and once you see that with a throwaway you know 
that's a break and flow and you should get in there. Yep. You can also ask someone to tell you when jam is ready to be busted. That's the easiest way. Yeah, but not someone in the jam, someone outside. Oh, not in, yeah. Because if as soon as you go up to ask someone in the jam what's going on, you've already broken the flow. <laughs> so you should. That's a good point. You should avoid that. Um, another hack though is th- throwing well is a big one. Give people good throws. Aim your throws. I mean, it's sort of painful, but really play better. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of as simple <laughs> as it is. If you're playing well, you're going to be in a flow state, and making sure everyone in the jam is playing well. But I do think it's an underrated problem that I've definitely been learning more about. And I want to be careful about this advice because it could go so wrong for so many people, including myself. I have to remind myself that even though I'm a big proponent of what we talked about before with my Matt and Lisa story of keep it simple, do all the basics, even if you're one of the best players in the world. But if you want to have flow, you have to push yourself a little bit because it's a lot of times jams can be really bad with top level players when none of them are pushing themselves. And some of that goes back to the whole thing of top level players, not wanting to embarrass themselves by playing badly. But when I'm playing with a freshman nine times out of 10, I'm doing whatever I can to make them play well. But every now and then I need to hit a big move to keep myself excited, but also to keep them excited because it contributes a lot to the jam seeing anybody achieve something at the limit of their skills. Cause that's another thing that we haven't really touched on, but I think is part of this is freestylers. This is how I know that people can generally assess flow, whether they know it or not. When someone hits something right at the edge of their ability, we all get excited, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. When I see a new player delay it, I get fired up in the same way I would get fired up if you did a double spinning switch guidance. I'm like, wow, I'm seeing you just reach this new level and it's exciting to me. And it will be exciting to me, not just the first time, it'll be exciting to me until I can tell it's no longer at your limit. And then it'll be (laughs) ho-hum, I've seen you do that before. So I think we all can intuit when someone is, their skills are meeting the challenge. And if that's happening, you're in a flow state. I hope this is helpful advice. I'll have to check. I'll follow up with the person who asked it and see if, (laughs) see if they found it helpful. Anything else you can think of? No, I think that's it. Okay. So how do we do? I think we are under two and a half hours for sure. Yep. I think we're around 80 minutes. Okay. That's great. The shortest episode so far. We always knew they would get shorter, but we had a couple of big topics we had to cover for our first ones. Yep. So awesome with that, Ryan. I will talk to you next time. Thank you to all our listeners. Please write us at clockarconner at gmail.com. Send us more questions. And don't forget also to send us segment ideas. As we promised, if you send us a segment idea, we will try it at least once. So if you have good ideas out there, send them our way. And with that, happy jamming. <laughs>